You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we're entering the second, uh, well, we're halfway through the second. COVID lockdown in Melbourne. Uh, Hopefully it will stop on uh, midnight on Tuesday. We'll see what happens. It's all looking pretty hopeful, in fact. Uh, Incredible uh, 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 tracing, um, COVID tracing uh, has been going on with people, thousands of people who are close contacts or uh, near contacts being... um, hunted down and uh, kept indoors and stopped from spreading, which is pretty um, impressive, I'll have to say. That's what it sounds impressive on on, the face of it. Anyway, there's uh, been other things happening, of course, uh, during um, uh, the COVID period. Lots of politics has been going on behind the scenes. Nothing stops. Uh, We're going to uh, talk to Ingrid uh, Palmer from the Collingwood Community Garden to get an update on what's happening down there since the Collingwood farm uh, establishment decided to put a padlock on the community gardeners' uh, plots because they have a a different plan, a different future that they think that uh, the 42-year-old community garden doesn't actually fit. So the uh, community uh, Collingwood Community Garden people have been working hard to try and push back on this to uh, ensure that they have a future. Uh, the um, We're going to talk to uh, Bharat Ali Batur about his film Batur, A Refugee Journey. Uh, lots of things have been happening um, in the refugee space. More and more of the refugees who have been given refugee status but have been continually detained in Australia for years. Uh, I mean, imagine being kept for eight years in detention when you haven't... Uh, committed any crime and in fact had a um, a high court uh, uh, ruling that says that the Australian government is allowed to detain you forever, which is just bizarre, 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 bizarre. The rule of law seems to be teetering on a wild sea. Um, this is the week that was is back. We we did we've uploaded it. We can actually hear it this week, and so there's lots of fun from Kevin. And uh, then we're going to devote the last half hour looking at um, the uh, 
cuts to universities right across Australia, but in particular we're going to talk to Nahui Ludirkin from uh, La Trobe Students and we're going to talk to Monica Sestisto from Melbourne University. Uh, the students are revolting. They are. They've had enough. And uh, when you consider that uh, they're supposedly consumers, paying consumers in the new model you'd have to wonder where their voices are really at in terms of service and delivery under the present uh, consumer-oriented model that uh, has overtaken and is crushing our public universities. We're going to hear from them. Um, Monica, in particular, is going to talk about this thing called the Menzies Institute, which is part of this ongoing... Uh, assault by right-wing ideologues to completely reshape the uh, purpose of uh, public universities in Australia in their own image. Um, Before we do get on to all these serious issues, um, there's a couple of bits bits of news I wanted to pass on. One of them that might might have... um, passed you by is that on Friday, the UNESCO World Heritage Committee voted to delay the listing of the Great Barrier Reef as endangered, in danger. Now, this is a very interesting thing because um, this is one of those kind of things that's been floating in the background uh, during COVID and uh, during Scott Morrison's um, rise and ever rise, hopefully, uh, it just it just indicates how much work will have to be done once this LMP federal government has has gone is, is over because uh, this is this plays into the need for this government to maintain uh, its uh, grip on the uh, fossil fuel industry as being the only vehicle of economic uh, prosperity in Australia, despite the environmental disaster that uh, is going on all around us. Uh, Last week, the MUA had a further further webinar around the potential for offshore wind turbines. There's a whole lot of people doing lots of great work in... in, um, the space of uh, sustainable industries, uh, good jobs, all the rest of it. But we've got a a blind LMP federal government. And as I said, it's uh, going to take a lot of work to undo some of the disastrous policies that they've put in place. But I'm assuming they will be kicked out and we will get on with the job. Uh, But uh, the issue of the uh, Barrier Reef, Great Barrier Reef, not being on the endangered list is a result of the Scott Morrison government lobbying the committee over um, uh, months, months and months and months they've been uh, lobbying. Uh, But apparently they have put them on notice that... uh, uh, it, they need to do something about the disastrous effects of um, climate change, etc., on the Barrier Reef. That is an ongoing campaign that's been uh, for you to keep in mind. The other one that's important for people to be aware of is this thing that uh, they just released the National Dust Diseases Task Force report. Now, that might sound very dry, but it's actually about silicosis. Now, silicosis is 
being called the new asbestos. It, it causes absolutely disastrous health concerns for people who um, are working with, uh, uh, you know, your soaring of um, uh, reconstituted uh, um, stone. It, it's made up of uh, dust from a whole lot of uh, stuff and compacted into stone. It's the sort of stuff that's put on top of the um, uh, surfaces in uh, kitchens. It's all over the place, all over the place. Anyway, it's um, disastrous. And uh, the the unions have put out a joint statement coming out of the ACTU about the uh, recommendations that are, have happened coming out of the National Dust Disease Task Force report. Now, I'll read the stuff that they've said because it's fairly, it's really quite important and it shows you how we've got a driver who is asleep at the wheel. Unions support the NDDT recommendations on data gathering, coordination of information and awareness raising, medical diagnosis and research. However, the balance of the recommendations favour these activities at the expense of improved prevention, which is the only way to effectively reduce the number of workers suffering from a highly preventable group of diseases. Now, Australian unions find that the current NDDT report fails to recommend regulatory or compliance activities for potential exposures across all industries, including general construction, tunnelling and quarries. Defers consideration of a ban on importation of some or all engineered stone products until 2024 without any quantitative measures on what are the measurable and acceptable improvements in compliance rates by the engineered stone sector. Recommends a self-regulatory model for industries where there is a risk of exposure to respiratory silica, crystalline silica, a model that has clearly failed. This is really, really reprehensible from the um, from the government, uh, and uh, obviously a campaign has to be adopted because we're talking about a severe. Uh, um, Medical, I mean, people just, young people are dying because there is, are not proper uh, systems in place, basically. The Australian unions are calling on Minister Hunt, who sits up there and talks as if he's a responsible Minister of Health. And this report comes out and these are the recommendations that they put forward. Immediately adopt a licensing system for work with engineered stone as a transitional measure towards an implementation of a ban. Immediately draft a regulation that requires persons conducting a business or undertaking to identify risks of exposure to respirable crystalline silica and other inorganic dusts and apply strong measures that control hazards at its source, classify silicosis and other silica-related diseases as deemed diseases for the purpose of workers' compensation, establish compensation funds to support those suffering from dust diseases such as silicosis and coal workers' Pumonoconiosis, all these diseases, they've got such terrible names, and their families. These funds 
um, invest in product development should be funded by particular industries. Invest in product development that could replace engineered stone with as much safer product. Immediately further re- reduction in the workplace exposure standard for respiratable crystalline silica. This is, I mean, this is all doable and this is directly related to the health of workers. And if you were a responsible health minister, you would think this is a great opportunity to show that you actually care. COVID restrictions across Victoria have changed. New changes have been introduced to slow the spread of COVID-19 by reducing the number of people leaving their homes and moving around Victoria. This means that you can only leave your home for one of five reasons. Shopping for necessary goods and services, care and caregiving, including medical care and getting a COVID-19 test, exercise, authorised work and permitted study, or to get a COVID-19 vaccination. Victorians may also leave home to visit their intimate partner, their single social bubble buddy, or in an emergency, including those at risk of family violence. You must stay within five kilometres of your home for shopping and exercise. This limit does not apply to work, when giving or receiving care, getting a COVID-19 vaccination, or visiting an intimate partner or your single social bubble buddy. Face masks must be worn indoors and outdoors whenever you leave home unless you're working alone. These actions will protect our loved ones, friends, colleagues, healthcare workers and the community. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35, are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we've got Ingrid Palmer from the Collingwood Community Garden Gardeners on the line. G'day, Ingrid. How are you? Um, Good morning, Annie. Yeah. Tell me. I've got a bit of feedback. Hang on. All right. I'll try we'll, that. We'll, we'll, we'll just have to press on. We're not hearing it, I'll have to say. so. We will press on, that's all right. Go yeah, for yeah. It. Now, yeah. Um, listeners will know that uh, the Co- Collingwood Community Garden has been uh, had its doors uh, padlocked by the Community Garden, uh, uh, Collingwood Farm, and... Uh, and there's a plan that they've got a plan, but uh, obviously the uh, community gardeners have been pushing back. Can you tell us about what's been going on? Oh, so many thoughts there, and so many thoughts like leading into this. I'm just trying to be keeping a really clear mind because I can go in so many different directions with that answer and talking about this in general. Um, 
yeah, there is, well, I don't know if there's a plan, there's a plan, there's not a plan, and there's been all different reasons given. Um, I, and I really also want to restrain as to why it's been closed, that is, and what might be coming next. Um, is it still padlocked? Is it still It's pad- still padlocked. We are still um, asking for proper consultation. Hopefully, I don't know, that that process will take place. Um, also, with beyond that, it's um, Crown land after all, so the government departments have a say in how that's used. Um, There's also an historic overlay, isn't there? There is. Look, I'm not the person to speak to about that. There's um, a number of levels of uh, value and meaning and heritage in all different senses of the world and all word and all of the different layers that that can happen. Um, But like for us, um, as gardeners, there we are. I think sometimes I've heard that there's a bit of a perception in some corners or quarters that we're like an exclusive little group of people that are protecting our own little bit and which could be better used for more people and in the community or something like that. Um, we're not. Um, I, and I we're think, protecting I think, I think what the Ingrid, meaning of the place is. Yeah, I think, Ingrid, that would be called a tactic to try and yeah. undermine you. Yeah, I think you're right. You're right. But, I mean, for anybody that might buy into that, like, don't, because we are not protecting it for ourselves. We're protecting what it is. And we are, like, custodians of something that's been there as in the current form for 42 years. And anybody that's ever had a pot plant or a garden that they can tend to, um, knows that it's a relationship that you build with that earth, with that growth, with that life. It's not just something that we put a crop in and pull a crop out. Can, um, we, can, we look at the, can we look at that in particular? I mean, community gardens were a uh, force. I mean, this particular garden is 42 years old and it was a particular yep. force which was to bring back urbanised communities to a connection to the earth. And, yes. And it wasn't just that, uh, the, you know, like there's 70 plots. It's not just 70 people. It's a whole no. community, right? It is. That's correct. In a lot of, in, a, in many senses as well, uh, we have um, a really diverse community of people. There are, and look, until I think, just last a year ago, almost a year ago, there were still um, gardeners in there that had been there for that 40 years. And they were people that were like the elders of the garden, and there are still some that have been there over 30 years. There are people that have been there for a few months and a few years and for every length of time in between. So it's not like people go in there and hold it and nobody else can ever get in. There's a turnover. Um, and there's a relationship and an interaction between all of those people at all of those levels. Um, some people may be an individual person in a plot who are connecting between the other people that are in there and also people in their wider community with whom they can share and make a connection and also share what they grow and learn and do there 
and also the product, like for me myself, I'm a better person that I can give more to the community because of who I am being able to go in there and spend time. No, um, it, it, it's, lo- it's and, local yeah. identification, right? Yep. Yeah. In what sense? Well, in the sense that uh, all, the, all the people who actually live, uh, who work and uh, uh, make product, uh, you know, grow stuff at the mm. community garden are all locals. Um, yes. And it's about community uh, building. But, uh, yeah. Um, it, but the, it, it, if, sorry, if I can just finish off the previous thought really, really quick. Sorry, I won't try to ramble no, no, on about it. On. But there are, like, groups of people in plots. There are families. There's, like, all different... What I was trying to say is that there's all different um, connections. And, like, there are people that, have, you know, a group of people get together and, 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 and share a plot. And so they're not all like this. I'm just saying there's a diverse range of connection. Also, I've spoken to people, and this always comes back to me, that... Like one woman that I spoke to who didn't know that I was there, I was sort of just came into a conversation and she, I mean, she knew I was there, but she didn't know I was from the garden that she'd sort of got through last year with the lockdowns by going, she never had a garden, didn't want a garden, but she liked to go down there and have a coffee and look at all the little worlds below from that bridge. So it brings value to the community in all sorts of ways. And we have potential like to grow from that and to bring community value in the future from the allotment garden model that we have there and the history that it has by building on it, not by wiping it out and making a clean slate. So so um, what have the uh, community gardeners been doing uh, now? What's, what's going on right now to further the um, uh, to, to get control back? Because that's what's going on, isn't it? That, that for some well, reason or other, the uh, the, uh, the Collingwood Ga- uh, Community Garden, uh, uh, Co- Collingwood Farm, appears to believe that it has control over the garden. Well, um, that's another thing, perhaps a tactic that's been used that um, that that. that, that that the gardeners have, have failed in our duty of caring for the place, but actually we haven't had control. We've been, we haven't had control. We haven't had representation um, in management of the, of the garden. So it has been managed by the farm management. Um, it used to be like open. There's been a lot of changes sort of over the last years, last decade and the last few years. Um yeah, so like it would be great if we actually did have some more autonomy and more input. We're on the ground there, so we know what's happening. We know the history and we know the meaning and the significance of the place and the potential. Um, we know what's happening with each other. Um, and so for the gardeners to have more autonomy and more involvement in the actual management of the gardens, whatever form that would take, would surely be a positive thing for everybody. So um, Richard we Wynn... wouldn't have been in this position where the gardens uh, and the stuff that's growing in there now and the weeds are coming over and people are devastated and have that sense of separation. Has the state government, um, Richard Wynn's, um, uh, put his head in at all yet? Um, we are, I think, aiming to be speaking to people in the departments that manage the Crown land, so um, hopefully we can 
have the sort of truth and the story be heard and understood in the right places, that would be great. So these processes that are hopefully starting to begin is that... <laughs> so so that it, things are beginning to... So I know that there's a Facebook uh, page uh, yeah. and there's a campaign that's going on at the yep. moment to activate people. Um, this is yep. not a, this battle isn't over. Um, no, it can't be. It can't be because it's so important that if it is lost in its present form, it can't be improved. Um, it can only be have be replaced by something else, and uh, we just can't think that that is a reasonable outcome. It would be a, a travesty, really, to have that space and everything that it is lost. Yeah, it's interesting um, because uh, um, one of the underlying things that are going on is that there's uh, the funding models for community uh, areas in our society are now... Uh, moving towards uh, funding for uh, experiences for people on NDIS and, uh, you know, getting funding from different government departments and policy changes, which have gone on separate from the community garden uh, movement. Like they see potential for community gardens in their uh, furthering of their efforts to get money from government departments for uh, so, uh, social development. And, right. and it all sounds really great and all the rest of it. But it, isn't it amazing to think that creating these kind of policy models could uh, bring two community uh, ideas Against each other, it's like a Godzilla fight, you know. Like, yeah. You know, it's it's ludicrous that the community. It is. Yeah. Oh, that really is that. That um, the, the the good things that you hear about what could be done, like you know, in terms of this other plan, don't have to be at the expense of what we have there. I mean. But there's a there's space that you could do that in. You don't have to tear down what's there. Why can't there, you know, two things, you know, they can use another space for those um, projects and enterprises. Yeah, yeah, they're real bullies, it's, aren't they? You know they? what I mean? They're so being bullying. It's like keeping the gardens doesn't stop people from, if they have those plans and those uh, things that they want to do, great, do them. But don't do them on, on our gardens, on the existing gardens. And... Do it somewhere else. There can be interaction. I mean, those those things can exist. They don't have to exist on that space. That space is not empty space. It has already a pro a purchase a purpose. Is there any chance? Is there has there been any movement by the uh, farm to actually uh, enter any uh, good faith dialogue at all? Um. Uh, look, on the face of it, I can't see so. There's, there's, um, there's been like an occasional, not nothing to us in particular. So, like, we presume to be the as the current set of gardeners that are there would wouldn't be outlandish to say that we were the um, primary stakeholders there. 
in the gut. Yeah. Um, so that hasn't really happened at all. Um, there's stuff on the website, on the farm website. I've looked at it a little bit. I haven't read it all because it's actually too painful. Um, but I've sort of glanced at those things. I try not to look up. I hear things, what is what is happening, um, and I try not to put a lot of, because I put my energy and focus that I do have, which is a little bit limited, my energy. Um, but and I'm a pretty high-energy person, but I get drained pretty quick, so I have to have a break and start again. So that energy goes into creating and trying to save what we have. So in answer to your question, yeah, they... Um, have put stuff up on the website suggesting that there is a community consultation process and asking for input into the new gardens, but I don't think that that goes into any sort of genuine resolution. God, that's pretty outrageous. That or, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty outrageous. Anyway, um, think, that's yeah. just ticking a box. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It's pretty I'm, outrageous. I'm here. I'm really just want to focus on saving these what we do have and improving them and making greater value for the community with the gardens that we have. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to get caught up in a slanging match or, you know, getting dragged into... I want to really just focus on the on, on, on not losing this. Can you tell, a, tell the listeners the uh, name of the uh, campaign Facebook? Oh, yeah. On Facebook, it is Digging In Gardeners. Digging in gardeners. Thanks for talking yeah, to us. Digging in gardeners save the co- save, help save the Collingwood community gardens. Thanks for talking to yeah. us, Ingrid. Thank you, Annie. Any time. Thank you very much for your time. And we're so hyper aware Insufficiency or favor Trying hard to care But evolution now Has led to such great stagnancy Killing revolution To preserve hegemony
so much dependency Nets trap the free Success now comes to privileged few Who got their liberty You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got, uh, uh, on the line, we've got uh, uh, Bharat Ali Batur uh, and it's all about his film Batur, A Refugee Journey. Uh, G'day Batur, how are you? Good morning Annie, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, great. Um, now, your film uh, Batura Refugee Journey is quite is is uh, scheduled to be playing at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, but with COVID, uh, I suppose you know everything's a little bit up in the air, and people should be looking at the Nova website. But we'll talk about that a bit later. But one of the reasons for why I wanted to talk to you about uh, this film in particular is because it takes people from Afghanistan all the way through the journey of a person trying to get to Australia by boat and why. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you, how you got became involved in this film? Uh, this film is actually my personal accounts of my displacement. When I had to leave my country, so as a photographer, I... I felt like I need to document this because my people have been, uh, they have been, my people, I mean, the Hazaras from Afghanistan and Pakistan, they have been trying to escape the persecution uh, in both countries uh, and uh, to, to go to somewhere else. And a lot of them, they tried to come to Australia. And I wanted to visualize this journey, both for my people and for the people of Australia to have it because we did not have any visual images or videos from 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 this uh, journey and i i know like people thousands of people before me came to australia uh, by a sea but uh, we only heard their numbers so how many people were there they were just numbers rather than actual humans and also uh, what what other uh, thing is important about this film is like i try to highlight what are the reasons that someone has to leave or risk their life to get to another country for safety so what are the reasons so i have to uh, i have tried to find those answers in that in that film and to to give like to show that to to, to the audience 
And that's what people should realise. You you are a photojournalist and you are a person who, uh, anybody who has uh, had to uh, think in terms of journalism as a profession will understand exactly what you're talking about there because you are actually not just living the events, you're crafting your story at the same time. You're a pretty wild guy. Yeah, yeah, that is that is the job. Like because as a photojournalist, I think yeah, like it comes to me. I I I I feel like what what is happening around me. I have to tell that story. So, and this was important when I was on uh, when I was my own subject or my own story. So I had to tell my story at that time. So yeah, it was a bit different experience rather than telling stories of other people that time it was just my own story but still uh, I was telling the story of thousands and hundreds of others at the same time who were traveling with me or who I met along the way. Did that uh, professional skill that you're applying to this story uh, actually uh, help you from losing your mind? Uh, leaving, sorry, I... The, the... Losing, I mean, you, you document some incredible things. Uh, 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 to begin with, at in Afghanistan, the film covers quite extraordinary uh, levels of violence and you talk with people. You are right in the thick of that violence and as an Asari, you're not just... You're always a target. So t- taking on the role of a photojournalist, uh, create uh, you know very skillful, and always you know jumping in to find the story, uh, it, it gives a sense of uh, control that in an un- in a situation that's un- out of control. Yeah, uh, I know. This is like sometimes even because when you are working in a in a war uh, like war zone, you say like Afghanistan is a war zone. So even then, this sometimes like situations do not remain in your control, and you have to find ways to to survive, and you have to find ways to to tell or do your job and to tell the the stories. So, Ah, uh, I don't know how to explain that. It, it is very difficult. <laughs> well, well, the thing about it is, is that uh, because you are living the story, uh, you give people a real insight into a whole range of things, that, like the personal connections that you made with the men that you met in Indonesian uh, refugee camp, for example. Mm. Yes, I did uh, because I was like made easier for me because I was part of them. Uh, I was living that life as the others, and uh, and I connected well uh, w- with them because my story was no different than, than them. The only thing which was uh, uh, making me different or putting, uh, like, dif- uh, yeah, making me more uh, prominent or visible was my camera because in that uh, uh, journey, people smugglers they are they are the ones who who do not 
want to reveal their identity and uh, also as well as the, the, the people who are traveling they are also not comfortable uh, sometimes um, uh, with with with, uh, with their identities to be revealed in in a way because uh, uh, they I don't know like they are suspicious of anything because they have seen a lot of traumas they have seen a lot of uh, uh, they have been traumatized a lot they have seen a lot of issues and that with if you're pointing a camera on them and they will be suspicious why you are taking their photos is it going to create another problem for them or is it what what is happening so i i had to explain to everyone like okay what i'm going to or what i'm trying to say and in the beginning it was not probably making a lot of sense to them but now each of them like they say oh yeah you you really had a clear mind what you wanted to do and how you told this story is incredible. Yeah, so you you were constantly negotiating with the the people. There, there's a couple of really quite amazing uh, statements that different people make. So, for example, your friend says that when he originally thought he was going to go on a boat, that it was ninety nine percent of a chance of drowning, but after a while, it became uh, it flipped and became one. Uh, there was. Uh, uh, 1% chance of not drowning if once you step on one of those boats. It, it's pretty compelling stuff. Uh, yeah, that, that is true because uh, once, you, like when you don't have experience, you don't know how how the, those boats are and how the sea is actually. And coming from a country which is not connected to sea in any way, and like we don't... We, most of the people they are they they they, they see the they, they experience see or they see see for the first time in their lives and like they it starts with a very precious journey or like a very rough experience so it it is not very, like it is a lot of surprise for them and uh, yeah jumping on those boats in the dark when like when it is the daylight the next day, then you see oh this bird is like probably does not have the capacity to uh, have all these people, so you really lose her quickly and uh, also the condition of birds sometimes a lot of time I think surprise you. Yeah, 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 and the incredible uh, gouging money gouging uh, for the seats on these. Uh, Death traps. The um, there is it was something that made you more visible than your compatriots, and that was your connection with uh, your mentor, your photojournalistic mentor, and the very hard work that they put in to try and get you to, you know, they had connections with people in high places, didn't they? Uh, yeah. And the amazing thing about uh, Tim Tim Page and uh, his partner uh, Marian is, like they uh, they kept the contacts that they with with people who who they have worked and uh, were friends for many years. And uh, like when I was in that situation, and they when they learned about it, so they started. Doing like they tried to help me in any way possible. So they reached. What happened that they reached one of their friends uh, uh, in in Jakarta, who was a journalist from during Vietnam in Cambodian War with with Tim. So 
yeah, the story basically the 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 the, the good story for me starts from there. Yeah, and I'm not going to give up my life, give alone uh, more on to that. So probably the, the film will tell uh, yeah, what, what exactly. happened actually. But yeah, that that is it. Uh, really, like Tim Page, the main uh, role in 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 my kind of turning my fat fat uh, from there. So actually, as you say, Batura refugee journey, you 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 personalise, you make it clear to Australians in this film, and I suppose the world, because it has uh, it, its important message is to everybody about why a refugee, a person, a real person, not just not just a, a term called refugee, but a real person, uh, is uh, is. Um, is asking for help and can contribute to uh, their new country. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, as you mentioned, that this is a personalised, and I, the, 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 the my uh, intention was to to truly and very honestly um, tell the story and give a visual and a picture of this circumstances that we have been debating every election or after election, uh, like the policies uh, run around this and like um, our elections are won on the on the debate of refugee issue. So, like because a lot of time uh, this issue or the people, the refugees, they are mostly kind of, uh, they are given a very political uh, face rather than humanitarian. So what I have tried here in this uh, in this visual uh, to that uh, to show that they are people just like everyone here in Australia. They they similar people. Uh, they what what I I stated in the beginning that my intention was to to find the answers why people they live in the first place what make them live there like to 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 risk their life we are like they know this is risky and to go for and find for like try to find safety so this is that's why like i wanted to give that human face uh, that it has to 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 show it to the people now I know COVID has put um, uh, has closed cinemas for the moment, but where when do you think the film will be shown? Um, the we, uh, the the session the first session which was supposed to be on the twenty second of July it was uh, sold out. Uh, so the second uh, so then we had an encore session uh, on the first of August, which is still going on. Uh, and then the rescheduled date for the 22nd July was uh, uh, the like 6th of August. So, so that is the 6th of August for for the rescheduled date, which has not been announced yet. But uh, yeah, I think this is the first time I'm announcing. Uh, so that is 6th of August if everything goes well. And at the Nova. At the Nova, yeah, exactly. Th- thanks for talking to me, Batu. Oh, thank you very much, Annie, for having me in your show.
took a leap of faith to make it so Your mother and I both hold you in our heart We couldn't share a home and so we had to part But we shared a love when we gave you your name And if nothing else Listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when friends know that not connected to this dry July fad, but for years alcohol has not passed my lips in July, well, January and July, and maybe it's the abnormality of all that that has led me to having these silly thoughts. Remember last week I suggested that, oh no, you didn't hear it, did you? Well, I suggested in what you didn't hear, that if the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories were still in the hands of the bloated, inefficient public sector, the vaccination shambles may not be a shambles. Well, this week I've had another silly, silly thought. See, one of the big investors in the Crook Casino, clutching at very flaky straws, as Jamie Puker's private mint on the Yarra Bank fights to prevent Jamie and the team being declared not fit and proper to take the punters hard-earned, 
has suggested the answer lies with the state government forking out lots more money for the regulator to do what it hasn't been doing. Presumably money from the state income anti-pokey anti-gambling campaigners claim explains the lack of zeal in dealing with the industry. Well, my silly thought is, if the public purse has to spend heaps, and this presumes it would take it seriously, spend heaps to prevent rampant criminality by the Yarra, then why shouldn't the casino, rather than the public purse, have to fund the regulator? I told you it was silly. I'm having such a silly month. Because how could anyone suggest Jamie Puker is not a fit and proper person to take other people's money? For heaven's sake, his family's been doing it for all their lives. It's their raison d'etre. Although the Crook Casino lot picked up the Oops, that hurt, I I shot myself in the foot award of the week for its brilliant self-preservation tactic of sending a solicitor's letter to the state government pointing out the disaster if it could not go on ripping off or, sorry, taking people's money. Repercussions for the state, for the shareholders, for the workers. It would renege on loan obligations, calamitous for all of us. Which, hard as it is to believe, the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commissioner took as a threat to circumvent a not fit and proper finding, as if Jamie and the team would threaten anyone, but but with blood pouring from its foot, the board said the letter may have been a bit of a mistake. A bit. Jamie doesn't threaten people, he just thumps them. Reminded of his pugilistic skills this week with the death of former capitalist media executive David Leckie, whom we recall that Sunday morning on a well-manicured nature strip a few years ago, David Rocky Leckie versus Jamie Kid Puker for the posh Sydney Harborside Suburbs title. And recently, a Kid Puker employee claimed the kid had thumped him, so Jamie's keeping his hand in. Well, he's fist in. Speaking of the vaccine shambles, well, it makes a shambles look like organised perfection. Speaking of, big supremo Scuttlebem more less son, a.k.a. Scummo, says everyone should have been vaccinated by Christmas. Although he didn't say which Christmas, given when he said it'd be all over by Easter, we thought naively he meant last Easter, but, but at least Scummo declared his love for Troop Luozzi. Well, indirectly, as he pointed out, love means never having to say you're sorry. Sorry over sloth and avarice and evil, but persevering with their altruistic, thankless task, the caring business class continues to assist and advise ingrate, lazy, avaricious workers how they can improve their lives, escape from the pandemic of slow wages growth, which has the caring business class so distressed. Continued this week by one of the most qualified advisors to working people, Jenny Lambaste Labor, who moved from assisting workers through a role at the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, so reliable and respected an authority that great journals like the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin quote its wisdom regularly, to her new important role as Supremo of the True Blue Aussie Chamber of Profits, responding to a biased article by ACTU Secretary Sally. McManus, it's what you expect isn't it, that wages were stagnant, that wage rises were good for the economy, exposed by Jenny as pure nonsense. 
We have experienced real wages growth over the past decade and have one of the highest average wages in the world. So you can imagine my surprise when I found Sally McManus claiming otherwise, Jenny wrote. Yes, Jenny, we can imagine. Why, she boasted, our wages have grown in real terms in the past decade by 0.5% every year. 0.5% every year, and still, lazy avaricious workers and evil unions complain about wage growth. But, showing her innate care for working people, Jenny advised them how to get even higher wages, address slow wages growth, <coughs> which is their own fault anyway. Work harder. Productivity. Workers are not productive enough. The caring business class proffers this solution by the day, leaving us to ask, when will workers and evil unions see the light, get off their bums and lift their game? Unions must partner with caring employers to ensure workers work harder, Jenny advised. Shades of former big supremo nuclear hawk himself in the accord. While it was important, Jenny added, governments play their role by reducing crippling taxes which crucify hard-working employers. Higher wages require improved productivity, not union hypocrisy, she wrote. Don't we have to admire the way the caring business class fights relentlessly to improve the lot of the ingrates? Thank you, Jenny, thank you. Let's hope they listen. And we all know the most ingrate of the evil unions is the criminal, no respect for the law construction union, the evil, evil CFWMEU. Its economic and industrial perfidy exposed regularly by the Trublowazi Capitalist Review, which highlights every criminal act, reports every conviction when their honours fine the union and its organisers and members trillions, quoting the bench's dismay at the lawlessness, the lack of respect for the law, illegally entering sites just because of a few safety problems, conducting illegal picket lines which are 100% illegal, and that most heinous of crimes, calling a scab, wait for it, a scab. Sorry, calling workers who just want to do a fair day's work for an unfair day's pay a scab. Pure evil. Except when? Well, the capitalist review is also gung-ho about stopping these economically disastrous lockdowns, that we must learn to live with the virus, live and die and recognise a few deaths and a bit of virus are nothing compared to the economic damage, the price of a price. And as such, New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berridge-Lockermin has been their hero, gold-plated handling of the virus. The converse of our state Supremo, the pejorative Dan, who seems to think stopping people dying is more important. Well, how the worm has turned. Gladys crashes from gold standard to rusted tin. And a capitalist review feature, feature writer comes up with... Berridge Lockermin loses nerve at construction expense. How dare she close down the construction industry just because a few workers travelling around the place could spread a little bit of the pandemic. The construction industry was 100% safe, practised all the necessary precautions. And here's the point of all this, listener. What is the first reason why it is so safe? Thanks, the writer wrote, to... 
strong unions. <laughs> so suddenly the most evil force in the country, out of control, no respect for the law, evil force is the hero, strong, a victim of rusted tin standard Gladys. But we shouldn't get too excited. They'll soon relapse into the most evil force in the country when it suits the argument. Like when a rational ideology gets out of hand, forcing the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin to warn us with Fossil fools proliferate! Green councils slammed again! And I mentioned how the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs is so respectable an authority that the, that the Wapping Sin can reliably quote its wisdom. These out-of-control greeds councils are signing up to an international campaign that's happening all over the world for governments to ratify international treaties against fossil fuels, similar to the anti-nuclear treaty our government refuses to sign because, well, because it refuses to sign. Thus, the whopping sin story under that fossil fools balanced objective headline opened, Greens dominated councils have been criticised for, etc. And who, may we ask, is criticising? Yep, no prizes for guessing correctly. The Institute of Public, very, very private, which pointed out sensibly, True Blue Aussie contributes less than 1.3% to global carbon emissions and Darabin, Yarra and Morwen emissions are a tiny fraction of that. So their activism won't actually make any difference. Oh, what fossil fools they are. I assume the Institute, being so respected and reliable an authority on just everything, does take into account all that gas and uh, coal departing our shores for destinations around the world. Still, it's comforting to know we don't have to do anything about climate change. Just sit back and enjoy the extremes. Oh, how could we forget? Great excitement this week as Brisbane and the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Government celebrate going into massive debt to pay homage to the obscene lifestyles of the very, very important people on the International Olympic Committee, being named to honour the committee in 11 years' time, despite the presence of our Minister for Sports Rorts, Richard Colback Profits, whom we might have thought would have been a massive turn-off. He's what? Their Sports Rorts Minister? Good God, what are the rest of them like? Although Richard may have been saved by the not irrelevant fact that no one else wanted it. No one else wanted to go into such massive debt just to glorify the Olympic hangers-on, proving they are more powerful than government, as true Blue Aussies IOC supremo, the delightful egalitarian John Coates and Dagger, ordered the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Supremo Anastasia Pallor Open Check to attend the opening ceremony she said she did not want to attend. John said he had been misrepresented by people saying he ordered Anastasia to attend. I just ordered Anastasia to attend, he explained. We've commented before on our admiration for Richard's intellectual power as Minister for Stuffing Up Aged Care, but it's worth noting that Richard is so competent he does double as Minister for Sports Rorts. And there have been a couple of signs balancing the twin portfolios just maybe beyond poor Richard. Well, any portfolio seems to be beyond poor Richard, exemplified by his approval for a state-of-the-art footy oval and club and change rooms for a suburban aged care home for the dying and 100 colostomy bags and 150 wheelchairs for the True Blue Aussie gymnastics team.
Unless, of course, he believes the gymnasts are in for a massive spate of injuries and the nonagenarians are in for a miraculous recovery. As, finally, are the workers, if for once they'd but listen to the wise counsel of the Chamber of Prophets et al. Get off their bums, lift productivity, work harder and harder, and nirvana awaits. Good morning. Five, four... Three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we've got Nowie on the line. Nowie is from the uh, La Trobe University. And uh, you're, you're the students are, are fighting mad, aren't you, at the moment? Yeah, we are. Um, we've uh, started a campaign because uh, La Trobe is at the moment, going through a pretty uh, massive restructure. Yeah, yeah, 200 200 jobs cut uh, alongside major restructure. Now, COVID, just like everything, COVID is being used to cover a whole range of uh, changes that were already in the wind at La Trobe, that's correct, and in other universities, public universities across Australia, where it was in the wind that they wanted to cut and to reshape, right? Yeah, I mean, that is spot on. I think that that's been one of the key narratives that we've um, had to change, that actually these restructures are not really because uh, COVID has left the you know institutions in a financially precarious uh, place, but actually these restructures have been in the making um, for quite some time, particularly, uh, you know, the... Uh, moving of classes online has been something that Latrobe, um, you know, has been trying to get into into that market um, for a while now. Definitely, yeah. Because I know uh, personally, I know that uh, people who are teaching um, at universities, uh, the loss, the apparent loss of uh, foreign overseas students, is not entirely correct because they have been busily. Uh, teaching online ever since COVID started. So clearly there's something else going on. And uh, and it's not just La Trobe, it's right across public universities. Now, public universities were were not given JobSeeker and uh, something like this incredible amount of uh, uh, casualisation uh, of employment for teachers, uh, lecturers. And how do... How, I mean, your this model, this business model uh, that they are foisting upon universities, public universities. Um, how is this affecting your educational outcomes? You're a student. Mm. You're supposed to be consumer. Do you have any rights? Um, well, I guess to begin with, yeah. I mean, I study arts, and as we know, last year the you know Liberal government uh, doubled fees for um, students enrolling in areas like arts um and i think you know you also hit the nail on the head by saying universities have moved moved into essentially uh business models where they treat education as you know it's a key commodity that they want to um sell and they want to churn out as many students through the education system as quickly as possible so we've seen an increase in the size of um you know, classrooms, uh, you know, an incredibly casualized workforce that is only able to, you know, grade your paper in, you know, 20 minutes and it's worth 40% and they can't really give you all this feedback. Um, so I think part of it is like the diminishing quality of 
education is the fault of the university itself by not actually, you know, paying teachers uh, for, you know, higher marking times, um, by not paying teachers for, you know, enough time to prepare a class for, you know, over 40 students and actually give that, you know, face-to-face, you know, uh, really kind of like treatment that, you know, students need in order um, to learn. So it's just a profit-driven system. And as students, I guess you don't really have um, many different avenues. I mean, we have obviously our student unions that were able to organize campaigns. Um, Latrobe is technically speaking going to organize a um, forum to consult students because these, um, I guess, cuts that are happening at the moment um, are going through a period of, uh, I guess, uh, consultation is what they like to call it. Um, But it's really uh, realistically going to go through uh, regardless of consultation. Um, that's just them kind of like covering their butts. Um, so the student forum actually is um, a couple of days before the consultation ends, which quite clearly doesn't give students enough time to do that. Um, actually, you know, tell the university um, what we think about it as well. They've been pretty secretive about uh, the repercussions of these um, cuts that are happening to uh, the professional sector um, and how that's going to obviously have ramifications to uh, the teaching stuff because we know these two things are, you know, deeply um, connected. So I guess that's why we started the campaign um, of Latrobe Students Against Unicuts to, you know, stand in solidarity with um, staff and teachers who are, uh, yeah, looking at their jobs being uh, cut. Um, and I, I don't know if you know this as well, but for example, the uh, teachers union, the NTU, um, the branch president of Latrobe is actually. Um, one of the people whose uh, job is ma- being made redundant as well, which, you know, is a huge attack on, you know, the teaching union. Um, yeah, it's pretty bad state of affairs, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's very bad. In in fact, uh, it, uh, a while ago I tried to interview a person around industrial relations who, you know, at, from La Trobe. She's uh, uh, an expert in these areas. And she referred me to someone else because she said she basically was so busy she could hardly breathe. Mm, that's yeah. awful. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I guess to mention in here is um, we have also seen kind of like attacks to, you know, the student union um, at Latrobe last year. Uh, John Dewar actually created um, a competing student association with our old student union um, and defunded our, our old student union, the Latrobe Student Union, um, by 90% and gave this new institution that he also sits on the board of, um, oh the 90% uh, of funding. So I think it's also about realising that, um, I guess, kind of like the broader context of COVID has really given um, ammunition and I guess a bit of an excuse to um, Latrobe as an institution to kind of like, you know, defang the student union quite clearly also attack um, the NTU. Um, and it's also important to uh, realise that John Dewar is the chair of Universities Australia, who last year was organising the Jobs Protection Framework, which was about, you know, organising uh, a reduction in pay for uh, teachers and these uh, voluntary redundancies so that all these universities could keep their profits. So I think what is happening at Latrobe is, is important to fight because it also, you know, John Dewar is one of these key leaders attacking the, the university sector as a whole and trying to make it as profitable um, as possible. 
Yeah, so John Dewar is the uh, Vice-Chancellor of La Trobe and um, I was very interested to note that uh, the students in your in your media release are really astute regarding uh, what's going on because you say the casualisation practices that have diminished both staff security and students' experience mm. and the rehiring practices aimed at cutting wages, which is what it's about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely outrageous that, you know, they're proposing to cut 230 full-time equivalent um, jobs. And they've also, um, you know, quite, um, yeah, uh, appallingly said, oh, but, you know, while we're, uh, you know, cutting 230 jobs, we're also going to create 300. And these people that, you know, are losing um, some of these jobs will be able to reapply to these jobs. So really, um, it's kind of like a win-win for some people. Um, But we know that these jobs are going to have less job security, they're going to be casualised. And we know that most staff actually on university campuses have short-term contracts. Um, So, yeah, it's like a pretty significant, you know, move to just save a lot of money on wages and um, conditions because, like, I guess kind of like another important aspect of this is that they've they've actually spent millions of dollars um, in termination payments uh, because we know... Last year, there was also over 300 jobs that were um, lost of, you know, via forced, um, well, voluntary redundancy packages. And that was, you know, millions of dollars that they had to pay out to um, staff that they were letting go. So uh, we quite clearly, there's, um, you know, a pretty big pool of money that Latrobe can access um, if they wanted to actually take care of um, staff and wanted to actually see, you know, Latrobe as an institution uh, to, you know, drive the education system forward. But his priorities are about um, making profits and treating the, the university as, as a business. Well, dare I say it, uh, this is another little uh, whisper in the air, which is, of course, Latrobe's on some uh, prime real estate. Anyway, yeah. that that's another issue altogether. But it, you sound, it sounds like they're creating a palace of poverty, actually, uh, in our public universities. Uh, there's two things before I let you go, and thank you very much for speaking to us about this. Uh, they're actually... Uh, the, they're actually restructuring to the point where they're removing whole sections and talking about unprofitable courses. Of course, that affects people who are already halfway through their studies. But I was really interested in things like Indonesian being considered to be unprofitable. It's obvious that uh, there is no forethought about Australia's, uh, how useful something like Indonesian would be in our political landscape. It's quite bizarre, yeah. actually. Yeah, absolutely. They also tried to cut um, Greek and Hindu um, studies, but there were community-led campaigns to um, save them. Um, so, yeah, like it's, you know, they're also cutting um, Latin American studies um Really, a lot of um, yeah, kind of like courses that I think really enrich, um, yeah, kind of like also in expanding, I guess, a bit of like the horizons of um, Australian students to be able to um, learn a lot of these languages. But also, uh, yeah, we're in a region where also Australia has particularly played a pretty outrageous imperialist role in, you know, Indonesia. So you know, some of that history also needs to be learned. Um, yeah, say and- that again. 
Yeah. And also, yeah, of course, they're, um, you know, proposing to cut the school of molecular science. So move from 11 um, schools to downsize it to 10. And, you know, they, they say, you know, merge um, as a very, you know, key word in there to say it's not being cut. It's just being spread around uh, three different schools. So, you know, you'll still be able to learn these things. And, of course, that's only to be able to market that they still have, you know, some of these courses to attract those students. However, we know that, you know, there's staff that's being um, let go in, in this area. So, um, yeah, it's being merged into, like, life sciences uh, school and things like that. Um, but they're at least getting rid of one professor um, and a lot of administrational staff um, in there. So clearly deep cuts that we're seeing. Um, so, yeah. Well, there's a background of deep cuts previous to this. I mean, a couple of years yeah. ago, there were deep cuts to environmental science. Go figure. We're in the middle of a uh, <laughs> yeah. climate emergency. Uh, there's a, a big campaign that uh, university students are pushing, a National Week of Action, the 11th yes. to the 16th of August. Yes, and we would love to see as many um, students mobilised um, as possible. Um, I know at La Trobe we have uh, a uh, we're going to have a rally um, on campus, COVID permitting, um, on uh, August second to ramp up and promote the week of activity. Um, so we're going to have that at three thirty p.m. August second um, at the Agora, and then we're going to be joining the National Union of Students, uh, yeah, week of action from uh, the eleventh, which is going to be targeting uh, you know Menzies. Um, at, uh, Melbourne University, which is this, you know, right-wing uh, institution that is arriving at Melbourne University, which, you know, well, we know that Melbourne University is, you know, uh, sees some of the key architects of neoliberalism in there, so kind of fits that it's arriving there, um, but we're also going to be, um, yeah, fighting against that. Um, so, yeah, really keen for people to join us and to check out the Facebook page that we have at Latrobe, which is called Latrobe's uh, Students Against Unicut, so definitely check it out if you want to follow more about, um, yeah, what is happening um, at Latrobe. Thanks, Nowri. Thank you so much for having me. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a National People's Inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Sorry about that. G'day, Monica. How are you? I'm well, Annie. Nice to speak with you. <laughs> Half asleep, I think. No, it's all the excitement of having more than uh, 
two, uh, one person speaking about a similar thing. Now, we've just been speaking to Nauri from La Trobe students who are uh, joining other students in a national week of action against a union uh, um, cuts to universities. But you're from Melbourne University. You're a student at Melbourne University, and that particular uh, rally is going to finish up at what's called the uh, Robert Menzies Centre, which is auspicing the Robert Menzies Institute. And uh, I wanted uh, listeners to understand what money is really going into in public universities while it's actually been cut in other areas. Absolutely, Annie. So it's really important, I think, to emphasise that although the Robert Menzies Institute, um, which is supposed to open in the coming months at Melbourne University, has been defined by its supporters as a nonpartisan centre to honour Robert Menzies. Uh, in reality, it is a project of an explicitly partisan think tank known as the Menzies Research Centre. And that think tank is bankrolled by the Liberal Party and their friends in big business. So this, uh, this Robert Menzies Institute really is a project of the Menzies Research Centre to create an outpost at universities to exert public and scholarly influence. Yeah, yeah, and uh, if you were in doubt, the uh, it's being headed to, headed by Georgina Downer, Peter Credlin, and David Kemp, our that, old favourite. That is correct. Uh, might I add, there's also Jeffrey Hugh or Horn, sorry, who will be on the board, and um, you might be familiar with his role as chairman of the Institute of Public Affairs, which is another right wing. Um, think tank similar to what we expect the Menzies Institute will be at Melbourne University. So you can see that the composition of the board does indicate a pretty indelible link between the Menzies Research Centre and the Robert Menzies Institute at Melbourne University. You know, the extraordinary level of uh, cuts by a thousand uh, um, cuts, really, uh, to public universities uh, has seen an incredible level of uh, uh, funding coming to somewhere like Melbourne University by, uh, from, you know, using public resources to further the um, agendas of very large corporations and uh, like arms manufacturers and uh, things of this nature. This And this business about the uh, Menzies Research Centre it's quite clear that there is a really strong agenda to reshape public universities to a right-wing ideological uh, uh, sort of uh, framework, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's important, I think, for listeners to know that many millions of dollars has been splashed into this centre. So the federal government has committed $7 million to it. And of course, this uh, adds insult to injury at at a time when uh, staff and students are being told that the sector's in crisis and there's not enough funds coming in. Um, The fact that the federal government can offer $7 million to the Menzies Institute does show us where their priorities lie. And there has been an additional um, half a million dollars that the Menzies Research Centre has raised, mainly from wealthy benefactors, including the notorious Alan Jones. So that's where the money's coming from. Which are absolutely right um, to point to the desire by the hard right of the Liberal Party and their um, conservative friends to reshape universities uh, as a part of what they deem to be a culture war. And it's important, I think, to really 
understand how reactionary the Menzies Research Centre is. Uh, in recent months, they've been campaigning heavily against lockdown, um, which they deem, of course, as a threat to the profits of big business. But the type of people that uh, congregate around the Menzies Research Centre are unabashedly socially conservative. So they campaign against um, the so-called indoctrination of students in in schools where you're taught about Indigenous history and uh, multiculturalism and unionism. They promote books uh, by figures like Ken, Kevin Donnelly, who was a crusader against the Safe Schools program, which I'm sure you might be familiar with. Yes. They produce research about how casualisation, which you were speaking a lot about with Naui previously, about how this actually benefits benefits workers. So this is just to give you a taste of what they represent politically and what they intend to platform at Melbourne University. So $7 million is public money going into this partisan uh, organisation dressed up as a, uh, a, 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 uh, I don't know, some sort of uh, statue to Robert Menzies. Uh, And um, followed by uh, the absolutely calculated 20-year plan of the IPA and uh, the far right to dress up their ideology as being respectable by using Melbourne University as its a platform. That's effectively what's going on. That's absolutely correct, yeah. <laughs> well, there we go. So this is why we think we need a really strong, broad campaign that mobilises students and staff against this institute, which is an affront on so many levels. Um, And we're taking really inspiration from the campaigns that were launched against the notorious Robert, uh, sorry, the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation. Yep, yep. Uh, Up in Queensland. In Queensland and um, the University of Sydney in particular, there were very, very uh, fervent campaigns against this. Um, and in some instances, like at the University of Sydney, they successfully pushed the Ramsey Centre off the campus through the mobilisation of staff and students en masse. You know, it's really fascinating looking into the IPA, for example, and their incredible cynical approach to uh, using um, academic uh, principles and academic uh, hierarchies as a way of... Uh, you know, bolstering their credibility. It's a very old sort of methodology to uh, bolster your credibility, your con, effectively. Um, and when I was looking at all the various people that they have on board working for them, almost all of them have only mas- uh, have uh, have nothing more than a uh, bachelor's degree. Which, which is, you know, nothing wrong with a bachelor's degree. But it's a fascinating thing that very few of them actually have furthered that, you know, like they're not a master's or a doctorate. They, you know, like they, they actually scorn uh, the level of rigour that is required to reach uh, any standing within the um, academic world. It must be really disturbing to people who actually uh, see... Uh, you know, the original uh, framework of universities as being important for this to be happening. Yeah, it is incredibly disappointing and does uh, call into question the academic integrity of an institute like this. But I think above all, what we really want to rail against is the power of these um, partisan think tanks and conservative forces to 
intervene into universities and the, the complicity of university administrations in allowing them to do this. That's the other aspect to it, um, yeah. because, of course, this couldn't have come about if the former Vice-Chancellor, Glyn Davis, hadn't accepted the proposal of the Menzies Research Centre. Yeah, yeah. I think as a funny, uh, or perhaps less funny, but disturbing coincidence, Glyn Davis himself is now the CEO of the Ramsey Foundation, which is behind the uh, Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization Project. So you can see it's a bit of a vicious circle between uh, conservative forces external to the university and the upper echelons of management as well. Thank you very much for briefing us, Monica. You're both welcome. I might add if supporters of the campaign um, are interested, we have an open letter on our website, which is stopmenziesinstitute.wordpress.com. It would be great if people could find that. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We're right up to the wire. Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. Um, We'll go out with uh, Sydney After Dark by Melanie Horsnell. Pretty lights and shiny things You think you're depressed But it's probably just Too much coffee in your tea Too much caffeine in your dreams Cars will drive too mad and fast Up and down King Street They don't understand where I'm coming from It's a 50k zone But they're taking over me Flash my lights but they got no control You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.